T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. We are concerned not merely with the technical problem of securing and maintaining peace, but also with the important task of education and enlightenment. Smith, one of my favorite stories. Tell me about Wilbur Smith, Grant. Okay, well, this is the uh, basically the story of the Canadian government. So, to give you the background, the Canadian government involved in UFOs. In, well, they were called flying saucers. Mm-hmm. So Wilbur Smith never really used the U- word UFO. So what you got to remember with this UFO thing is that a lot of this is playing games. So, 1952 is when they discovered when they made the U- term UFO. It was by Ruppelt, who was the head of the U.S. Air Force Blue Book. And so they changed it because they didn't want people saying flying saucer and flying disc because that implies what's going on. So they said, well, we'll call it UFOs, and that's where it came from. So Wilbur never really used the term. He always called them flying saucers, flying discs. Right. So what, what happened? Was that? The, when this, he started in 1950. In, in November right. of 1950, he writes the famous, top, what's called the Top Secret Memo. But let me give you the background how I got involved with this because I didn't know he existed or whatever. So I had my sightings in Manitoba in 75. 77, beginning of 76, mid-76, and I'm working at this, and I said, oh man, this is the biggest story ever, man, this is going to be like million seller book, and I go and get this book already, and I, I go to Toronto, and I send it to people, and I get the outline of the book, and send in the chapters like to the actual publishing companies, and one tr- company in Toronto read their review, but they I put it in front of their board, and they said, ah, we're not interested, so I went to the Winnipeg publisher, who was a big publisher here, and I said, oh, she'll, she'll do this, because this is a big story in Winnipeg. Everybody knew about Charlie Red Star. It was a big thing. And she said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And I went, holy I couldn't believe it. So I said, that's it for sightings, man. This is a total waste of time. So I parked the book. I gave it to my sister. For 25 years, my sister held the book, the, the Charlie Red Star, or the, the, um, uh, the Charlie Red Star book, and then gave it back to me. And I hadn't even forgotten I'd written, even written the book. So anyway, I gave up on the sighting stuff, and then just before the sighting stuff ended, I was still there's still a couple of sightings came in. My father worked for the Department of Transport. He was a 
he was the Air Force, U.S. Air, uh, Canadian Air Force. Then he became a pilot in the Canadian government. So he was an aviation inspector. So he'd go to airports and inspect airports. And he'd, the guy that, you know, people coming in over buildings, how, build, how big can you build a building near the mm -hmm. airport and all those kinds of stuff, all that kind of stuff. So he says um, he had a sighting in 76, which I reported to the National Enquirer. My father was never so angry in his life and he got a phone call from the National Enquirer. What are you going to comment about his UFO sighting? And anyway, so he, but he was kind of, you know, he liked to play the skeptic. He was, you know, not over, like, down the rabbit hole like me. But, so he's, um, he says, oh, he says, uh, I was talking to Ernie Epp in the office today. He wants to talk to you. So this is a guy, he's a radar technician in my father's office. In and you were already into UFOs at the time? Or oh, yeah. We were, the, this is a, sort of when we'd oh, right. done the, the Charlie Red Star stuff. And he said, he had a UFO sighting. He wants to talk to you about it. And I said, oh, okay, cool. So I go to this guy's place, whatever. And he's a radar tech. And he was actually famous for, um, in 1959, a U-2 crashed in Canada. And every other, it was rumored to be a UFO crash. And it happened on the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border up north. So Ernie Epp was the guy that was watching the radar. And as the thing came over the poles, and he ba they basically determined this was a U-2. And they could see it coming down. And so the, they said when they got there, the accident investigator guy was also in my father's office. He went up there and he's... And this is in Paul Heller's book. Paul Heller writes his story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so they go up there, and he said, we, we get to the site, he says, and there's these uh, Marine guys, or these military guys with, you know, semi iraq rifles standing there or whatever. And he says, um, can the Canadian government, we're going to investigate this crash. And he says, no, sir, you need to leave, sir. He says, I'm, I'm the investigator here. You're on, Canadian Air, you're on Canadian territory here. And he says, the guy that sticks the gun in his stomach says, sir, an African-American guy, sir, I advise you to turn around and leave. <laughs> so he's, he's like, it's 1959, I don't know what the hell to do. So he's, he's all upset. He goes and gets on the phone. He phones Ottawa and he says, hey, there's something's crashed here and, and on the border here and I'm here to investigate and these damn Americans are there and they, they, they're telling me I can't go on the site. He says, what the hell's going on here? This is our country. And the guy says, ah. Well, he says, 30 minutes later, phone him back and said, uh, you better let the Americans do what they want. <laughs> So Ernie F was involved in this case. So he says this sighting. It was just a UFO sighting, some light in the sky. But I think it was related to, to Carmen or whatever. But he's um, he's um, uh, telling me this sighting, and then so he tells me the sighting, and it's like oh, okay, whatever. And then I say, and then he says to me, he says, you know, if you want to know what's going on with UFOs, you should you should study uh, Wilbur Smith. And I said, well, who's he? He said, well, he's the guy around the Canadian government UFO program. I used to work for him. What? He said really? you did. Oh, neat. This is one of these synchronicity things. Mm. You work for the guy. He said, "Yeah." He said, "He said he was the smartest guy I ever met in my life. He was the smartest engineer. He was totally crazy." He mm. said, "He was totally crazy, man. He had the UFOs were landing in his backyard. He was talking to aliens." I go, "Is what?" <laughs> I go, "Really?" And I said, "Holy shit!" So then I get his. He, I track it down and get his. Well, what year was this? You think? Do you remember what year it was when you were talking to this guy? It would be 76, uh, no, it would be 76 or 77. Wow. So, so it was like that period when they would publish the book in 77, I think they wouldn't publish the book. So then I, I figured, okay, I've tracked down this, I found out he was dead, he died in 62, Wilbur Smith, but his wife was still alive, her name was Merle Smith. So I contact her, I contact her by, by, by surface mail, and I said, oh, I'd like to come to Ottawa and uh, I'd like to interview you and uh, talk about what your husband's doing. And she said, 
Oh yeah, come yeah, fantastic. So she was so amazed that this young guy in the seventies would fly across Canada to come and interview her. So I go there and I remember I get, I get in the car, I get a rent a car, and I pick her up and she says, Oh, we're, we're going to James's house, the oldest son's name. They had three kids. Two of them had nothing to do with UFOs. I never met them, I never heard them comment on UFOs. The one kid, the oldest kid's name was James, and he was the kid that hid the files and stuff when it was all over. And so we're, we're going to James's house. <laughs> I still remember driving to James's house and she's talking about Alpha, Alpha this, Alpha that. And it's like, we're talking to Alpha. <laughs> she's talking about the family pet or something. <laughs> this is so weird. <laughs> and we get to James's house and then we talked about different stuff. And she started telling these, these really bizarre stories. And one of the stories I, like for example, it's in the book, I, I give the, the one story, is Paul Heller tells this famous story he gives this lecture at St. Paul, Alberta. So the 100th anniversary of Canada was the centennial. And they had all these centennial projects all over the place and this and that, whatever. So St. Paul, Alberta builds a landing base uh, uh, oh, yeah, for a tourist right, right. attraction. So Paul Heller goes there, and he's defense minister at the time, and he gives this speech. And it's on the front page of the Toronto, Toronto paper, Ottawa paper, Winnipeg paper. And the, the Winnipeg paper says, Top Secret Project Strikes Out, July, 4, July the 1st, 1967. So I, I go and I'm, I'm thinking, this, is, this has got to be... And he said, this isn't the first time we've had a UFO landing base. We had one in 1954 at Suffield, Alberta. So Suffield, Alberta was the, the, the army base where they were doing nerve gas tests and they actually blew up a city there. They had, hmm. they had this thing where they had these dummies or whatever and they had these trenches and these guys were in the trenches and they blew this town up with the dynamite or whatever and they had the fallout and these guys were in the trenches and what the, the fallout was and all this kind of stuff. And they were doing all these weird stuff, and it had a, my father told me it had a no-fly zone over top of it, just like Area 51, same thing. Hmm. So anyway, he said that they had opened the base. So in the 70s already, there was a guy, uh, Arthur Bray, who was a researcher in Ottawa. He and I were sending letters to Paul Heller already in the 1970s. And the question was, so how, how did the UFOs know where to land? Like, I mean, what's the deal? I mean, you opened the base, but the, the UFOs have to know how to land. So I'm thinking, well, maybe it is Wilbur Smith. So I bring this article to Mrs. Smith. And she was telling me all this stuff about the Prime Minister, that Wilbur had taken it to the Prime Minister of Canada, and that the Project, Mag the Project Magnet Report, which is the, the Department of Transport Report, so there's two. One was tr Department of Transport, one was Defense Department. So the, the Project Magnet, first Project Magnet Report, and then we had a second one. The first one sat on the Prime Minister's desk for three months, and then they decided the President, which was Laurier Saint Laurent at the time, and that um, they decided it wasn't wasn't time to uh, to uh, release it. She told me that, and then so I showed her this article, uh, "Top Secret Project Strikes Out," talking about the base. I said, "Can you read this article?" And she says, "Yeah." I said, "Okay. Can you tell me whether Wilbur is involved in this?" And so she reads the article, and she goes, "Yeah, it was Wilbur." <clears throat> and I said, "So what happened?" And she said, "Well, he was in contact with Alpha." And he said to the Canadian military, the high-level, high the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, she said, were involved. The, pri the Prime Minister's cabinet was involved. And the military was involved. And so he said to them, he made this deal. He said, if you don't try to shoot the damn thing down, I'll get it to land. So they said, okay. So that's why they opened Suffield. So Suffield was open for AFA to land at Suffield. So going back, so Wilbur Smith was channeling... Aliens or entities? Well, I asked, I asked, I asked people around him. So what he wasn't really—he was getting messages. Like I asked the one guy, I said, "How did Wilbur get the messages? How did?" Because I was trying to figure out, like, how did this happen? 
And he said, well, he really didn't get the messages. He would keep a pad by his bed at night. And then he would get up in the morning, and there would all be this stuff written on the side of the pad. And they, they actually told about the one experiment, reminded me about the experiment in the garage, but they would have these things where he'd come in and say, oh, Ephesus is this, Ephesus is that. And, and he was getting maps. But the main contacts were, number one was Frances Swan. That's the big one. She was in Elliott, Maine, down the, down the road from, from Frances. No, Frances Swan. She was a, a, a medium in mm -hmm. Elliott, Maine. She was down the road from Betty Hill, who lived across the river in another state, but within about two or three miles. Mm -hmm. And so she was the main, the main channeler. She was the main one. I think there was about five people with APA. There was a military guy. There was a, a guy who was a, a blind telex operator who was getting telegraphs, which involved this, this experiment they were doing where this blind telex operator would just phone up and he'd say, oh, there's a message from APA, because they were doing this experiment in, in the garage where Wilbur was being given this information on how to build, he called it gravity control, not an anti-gravity, but gravity control experiment, where he would have these things and he had a, a, a lawnmower engine, no, not a lawnmower, a engine from a um, washing machine and a vacuum cleaner. He had these linked together and all these, these belts and they were rotating this plate at 17,000 revs a minute. And they had these plates, they had these magnets uh, well, kind of like a perpetual motion machine or something like that. Well, they were trying to what they were trying to do is they would measure it, and then it would be two two percent less weight, right. which showed it was getting a, a levitation effect. And he'd been told how to do this. So what had happened was they were getting these messages. So that was one of the things where uh, they, there was a radar, there was a, a military guy here in Manitoba that when I talked to Mrs. Smith, she said, "Oh, you got to talk to Art Bray." Now, Art Bray didn't want to talk to me at all. He said this thing ruined his life. He was a oh. he was an expert on metals, on Russian nose cones. He would talk about you know Russian nose cones and they were analyzing how high it would go based upon the nose cone, what happened to the nose cone and stuff like that. And uh, she said, "Oh, you got to talk to this guy. This guy, this young little guy, he came all the way to Winnipeg. Why don't you talk to him?" And he lived in Morden, Manitoba, which is about seventy miles from here. So he 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 told me the story. He said well, they were working on this gravity control thing in the garage, and then Wilbur comes in and he says. We, um, we got a message from Alpha, do this, do this, whatever. And all of a sudden the phone rings, and this blind telex operator is on the phone. And he said, I got a message from Alpha. He said, shield the experiment. And Wilbur actually, in some of his writings, actually talks about this. He said, okay, that's it, hold it. And he said, no more. He built a wall made out of bricks inside the, 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 uh, the, 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 the garage. They built this brick, and they turned on the machine, and as soon as it turned on the machine, it exploded. And there was wow. ceramic magnets dug in the wall. And Wilbur actually says, somebody would have been seriously injured. But that's how they were getting these communications. It was really weird how they are getting these communications. And anybody that Wilbur was talking to, so if he heard you were talking to an alien, he would investigate. He was the idea of talking to the experiencers. And he believed that there was all these people that had this, this alpha contact. So I, at this point, someone who might not know about this would be asking, you know, what what is Wilbur's credentials? He was he just a, a crazy guy who just worked in the government? Or we, from what I know, he had some pretty serious credentials. He's a pretty serious yeah. guy. Yeah, he he had a master's degree in electrical engineering. He was the chief radio engineer for the Department of Transport, and now it's the Department of Communications. But I remember. Um, the whole deal was he had this high-level security clearance. I talked to the guy, the metallurgist, and he said, don't you know who Wilbur was? I said, well, yeah, he was the head radio engineer for Department of Transport. No, you don't know what he did? And I said, well, no. He said, he ran Radio Ottawa. And I, she said, you know where that is? I said, no. And I've looked it up numerous times. I could never find it. He said, it's called Radio Ottawa. 
And what they had was the, the, the flying saucer, they built a flying saucer um, track, uh, thing to track UFOs, which had five different things, change in noise, change in gravitational field, they had all these things, and, and they had alarms. That's what this radar tech guy was working right. on. He would change the tapes in these, in these machines, and they, were and they were trying to get UFOs to fly over there mm -hmm. and then pick it up. And um, so he said, that was on Department of Defense property, on the uh, Defense Research Board, which did all the weapon research. The same as Vannevar Bush in the United States was working on weapons there. These were the guys that worked on the weapons with the Americans and with the... With a lot the, of information online about this, about this, the, the big radio towers they had in Ottawa. The Shirley's Bay is where yeah, it was called. And so, so he was picking off Russian communications because he was in charge of all the channels, FM, AM, uh, you know, see all the, the people using all the different radio channels. Wilbur Smith had access. He was the guy, and when he was going to the United States, he, they were negotiating FM radio frequencies that had just come on at that time with the Americans. That's why he was in the United States. And that's when he, when he was in the United States, he said, I asked some questions about UFOs, and people started to talk, and I realized where there's smoke, there's got to be fire. And that's when he really got interested, and he comes back to Canada after this 1950 meeting, and he has this meeting at the embassy with Robert Sarbacher, who was a big military advisor for the, for the Americans at the time. And he gets told, flying saucers exist. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States. A small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush are trying to figure out what's going on. The subject is of tremendous significance to the Americans. And the Americans have also told us, and he's saying American officials are telling me, that other, that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. That's right. And so that's this famous top secret memo that he writes, and, he, and then at the end of the top secret memo, you'll see the, 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 the deputy minister. So in Canada, the minister isn't the powerful guy, because they shuffle the cabinet all the time. It's the deputy minister who's the powerful guy who's there all the time. So the deputy minister signs off, he says, okay, go ahead with it and keep me informed. So he actually gets the authorization. So people say, oh, he didn't have authorization. He was just these documents are in the book, right? Yeah, these yeah, documents are in the book. So that's, that's this whole thing, how it starts. I get there, and I find out that, yeah, this is all for real. And, and they had, so they had, they had, AFA was the main one. Then they had this Ponar, which the, this Miss, Mrs. Smith didn't really talk too much about. But the other one I heard a lot about was this Tyla. So Tyla was, um, um, uh, they called him the garbage collector. So Wilbur was big on nuclear weapons. Stop the nuclear weapons. He was being told by them, you got to shut the nuclear weapons down. This is bad news that you, you not only get the, the plume go up into the sky, you get the, the energy go down through the earth. And this was in the 50s? He was 50s. getting... Yeah. And, and he claimed that it was creating um, areas of, of reduced binding. So when the, the, the wave would go down through the earth, it would come out the other side of the earth and it would create these, these sections. And Wilbur Smith claimed these planes were crashing because they were going through these areas of reduced binding that were being created by these nuclear weapons stuff. And he actually said that the, it got put on the circular file. He tried to convince the Canadian government and they just thought he was totally crazy and wouldn't listen to about the, the and he had these binding, he had this binding machine that even his son told me to build. This thing with, that you could actually go to Toronto. They were saying, go to Toronto and you can get these, these areas of reduced binding and stuff. You can pick them up with this, with this machine that Wilbur had built that the, 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 the beings were telling him. So he was getting messages mostly through Mrs. Swan. Then he was also getting messages. They, this this uh, radar tech told me, he says to me, he says, uh, he says, well, I went, to, I went to Shirley's Bay the one Sunday. He says, just to drive around with the wife or whatever. He says, Oh, look, he says, the parking lot's full. He says, what's going on? It's Sunday afternoon. 
and he goes in there, and all these guys are around the, the big radio. They got this, I don't know what they used this radio for or whatever. And Wilbur's saying, make the communication. And the guy said, it's an illegal communication. I'm not making the communication. Wilbur says, make the communication. And the guy said, I'm not making the communication. This is an illegal communication. I'm not going to make the communication. And what they were doing is they were radioing Alpha. They had the, and the guy actually told me what the frequency was. It was 9-4 something. I, I can't remember. If I had known I was be telling this story years later, I would have remembered what the frequency was. But he said he knew what the frequency was. This was the weirdest thing in the world to walk in there. But he said this kind of stuff was going on. So I asked Mrs. Smith about this thing about the UFOs, alien, talking to the aliens and the UFOs lining in the backyard. And she said, well, yeah. And she explained it. And it was sort of like one of the stories that gets twisted. So what they had is now called orbs, which uh, we called ground lights in the 1970s, which when I talked to this guy in Morden, this um, metallurgist guy, I said, hey, we're over in Carmen there in Spurling. We have these things on the ground there. And uh, they sit there and we flash lights at them and they flash back or whatever. He goes, oh yeah, you mean monitors. I go, oh, you monitors. I go, like I play along like I know what's going on. He says, ah, yeah, we had those back in the 1950s. They're all over the place. And, and he, he said they would monitor the meetings, and they would sit on the windowsill, they'd have a UFO meeting, and the thing would they'd look, and the thing would be on the windowsill, of the, sitting there listening. And so they called the monitors, and uh, so uh, I, I, I said, I was talking to Mrs. Smith, and she said, oh yeah, these monitors were in, in the yard all the time, and she said that the one time they burned out a whole row of my beans, and then she said that the one time they were, the, the neighbor's tree hangs over into their yard, and she says, they burned out the part of the tree. I'm sitting in the tree, and it destroyed part of this tree. And she said, the neighbor came and said, Wilbur, we, we really don't care where your little friends are from or what's going on here, but could you tell them to stay out of my tree? <laughs> she told me this story. So you, you got this story, like the lighting in the so back. That's absurd. That's, that's really <laughs> It was true. I mean, it's like, when you're hearing this woman, and she was herself, she was secretary to the Speaker of the Senate. She was like, she was no little, little. Right, and, right. But what had happened was, at that time, French was coming into Ottawa where you had to speak French in order to get a government job. And she was just like, you know, just not having any part of this, man. These damn French people. She <laughs> she had this thing about, you know, and she said she was ready to talk. She had, It was about two days before she retired that I talked oh, to her. Really? And she was ready to talk. She told me all sorts of stuff that was going on. <laughs> and unfortunately, I didn't tape it or, you know, but, but I remember a lot of the stories she was telling me. And it was like, like it was like being in Twilight Zone. She was just, oh, yeah, we were talking to aliens. Wow. So was there other people... In the government that were with Smith, that also were in there was a lot, but they all held back. They never um, like they had the one we put at the very beginning of the book. We have a uh, a drawing that Wilbur has of a flying saucer. It has this little gun on top of the flying saucer. <laughs> They're shooting a gun off this flying saucer, and <laughs> and it was a meeting that they had and names all these different guys and some high level guys that were top scientists at the time, like Omar Salant. The one thing I refer, I think we had an interview before. I referred to it. Omar Salant was the head military guy for building weapons in Canada. And he was a very religious guy. He was in Toronto. He's friends with Paul Heller and stuff like that. And um, so Oman Salant was he mentioned in the top secret memo that he was sort of the, because it was a, a project, Magnet was a transport project, but it mentions uh, Oman Salant in defense. So this is November of 1950. It gets approved December the 2nd, 1950. And then six months later, in Montreal, at a hotel in Montreal, MK Ultra starts. And hmm. Oman Slant is at that meeting. And Oman Slant is all about, and, and MK Ultra is all about mind yeah. control. So you have this, this 1950 memo, six months before, that's written about the fact that the Americans say mental phenomena is part of the UFO thing. 
when there's no contactees running around, nobody knows aliens are telepathic. Nobody even knows there's aliens yet. The, the, the whole Adasky thing wouldn't start till 1952. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. And, and, and so Olaf Salanth is in this meeting. And that's where we say, like, man, this, this started the whole thing. That's what scares me about the technology is what are they going to use it for? If they figure out the Skinwalker stuff or whatever, what are they going to use it for? They're going to have little blue meanies coming to go after you and me and, you know, the, the <laughs> Taliban. And, and it's just like, we're just going to use this for weapons. And that's the scary part. And so, uh, Wil and, and Wilbur even said at the end of his life, because he had this gravity control thing that he was, he was working on. And his wife says to me, he says, uh, he went to the government. She said he had 37 patents. 30, yeah, 37 patents. And only, he only got one through. They bought a car with it. And the government was furious. So he would build these radio uh, communication devices for Department of Transport planes and stuff like that. You know, all these inventions. And she said they would just come in the house, just walk down, take the equipment, walk out, said, hmm. you're working on government time, we own this. Wow. And so the one they slipped through. And she said the government was furious that they slipped this, this patent through and they were able to buy a car for it. And, um, oh yeah, so then she said, so at the end of his life, he goes to a Dr. Rose. And I looked it up, there's this high-level guy in the, the National Research Council, Dr. Rose, uh, who actually came to a couple of these meetings. And he goes to Rose and he says, I've got this gravity control thing. And we've reduced the gravity by 2% or something like that. And then Rose says, well, write it down. I said, no, I write it down. I said, no, you gotta write it down. We're not, we're not, we don't want to look at it unless you write it down. He said, no, if I write it down, you're going to walk in my house and take it, and I'm not writing it down. Hmm. And he said, no, we will not look at it unless you write it down. And his wife says, well, we came home and said, she said, went into the, the garage, took the whole thing apart, came in and said, probably just going to build bombs with it anyway. It's better, it's hmm. better that we take it apart. And she said he never spoke about it again until he died. He only died a couple of years later. Okay. And she said he just dis disassembled the thing, and he even had the idea that this, the, you know, this was not going very, very well in terms of what we're going to use this stuff for. I think that was probably one of their main interests is weapon technology or advanced propulsion, you know, just like any government group, right? Yeah, that, that's what's going on now. You see, it's in play, I say now, I mean, you have this whole process, what people call disclosure. It's in front of armed services and in front of intelligence. It's okay. not in front of the, you know, the aerospace committee. It's not in front of the science committee. It's in front of armed services and intelligence, right. which is all the weapons. And, that, and people will say, oh, no, in the background, there may be, or whatever. It's like, well, I haven't heard it yet. I mean, I'll cheer if there is, but so far I know there's nobody, uh, nobody else is involved. And uh, I even wrote a, an FOA in the, in, to the, to the uh, Biden administration to the Office of Science Advisor, because that's where Podesta wanted to put, because that's the science advisor mm -hmm. to the president that look at the UFO thing. So I actually filed an FOA because they're not, they're, they, they can't, withhold FOIA, they have to answer right away, and said, What's, what do you got on UFOs? So I'm going to see, is the White House involved in UFO well, research? You didn't get anything back from I that? I haven't got it back yet, oh. so it may take a while. But that, that will establish, if there's nothing in that office, then they ain't doing any science mm -hmm. stuff. It's going to be just straight weapon stuff, which is, you know, what, what they... And that's the way it worked. People don't realize that, like, before World War II, you had guys like Schrodinger and uh, Einstein and... Uh, Max Planck and all these guys who were working on uh, all these different inventions and they said consciousness is primary and they made all these real dramatic statements and they're trying to figure out how the universe works and making these discoveries. As soon as World War II came along, then it all changed to this exploitation thing. Instead of uh, exploration, it became exploitation to develop weapons. And after World War II, it was always to do with weapons. So because you invented nylon and, and, and 
plastic explosives and jet engines and all this stuff during World War II. Then it was like, we'll develop it with the weapons and then we'll spin it out like we did with the internet or with GPS. That was all military stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the, the people will benefit by it later on. So all the money's going into the weapon thing and they control everything. It's not like they're going to allow you to develop something. They, they wanted weapons first. Right, right. But the Canadians, Wilbur was, was big into it. And you mentioned that you wanted to know about the channeling thing. So I'll explain how the channeling thing worked. So Wilbur had this, the woman in, um, Frances Swan was the big one. And she, and she was a well-known psychic? No, she, she, she had actually only started. It was this idea that this may actually, the people, all the players came on the stage exactly when they were supposed to. It started for her the, the a night before Halloween in 1953 is when it started. And she's putting up decorations in this, uh, in a small town, Elliot, and it's the town hall, and they're having a dance, a Halloween dance. And she's putting up the decorations, and this guy comes in, who she's never seen before. And it's a small town, so it's like, this guy's from somewhere else. I mean, he's not from this town. And she said he was really gorgeous, and he was a nice-looking guy, and he just said hi to her, or whatever. And then he just sort of left. And she believed that was Alpha. And she, of course, went with her. She believed that was Alpha. And she started getting these, these, these tones in her ear. And I think it was left ear. She was getting tones in her left ear. And it was really disturbing. And then they would give her this, this message. They would give her this message. And then she got upset. She says, I, I can't take this. I mean, stop this noise in my ear and stuff like that. And she learned, like a lot of people do, is you learn through a technique, through a modality, whatever it is. And then eventually you can do it without the modality. You don't need the, the tarot cards anymore. You don't need anything and that's what happened is she could do it and she would do the automatic writing so the tone would come in and her hand would start to write or whatever and she would do this automatic writing stuff and her neighbor happened to be Admiral Knowles and Admiral Knowles was a submarine uh, uh, guy in the Navy who was retired and he um, discovered her and he, he thought he was interested in UFOs and he was he knew Wilbur so he told Wilbur, there's this woman, she's got this contact. And Wilbur said, okay, let, you know, let's set this thing up. So he took it and he actually contacted all sorts of people. He contacted the White House. And actually, I think in the, in the book we actually have a document where it gets sent to the Secret Service, where they sent his letter to the Secret Service. So he sent it to the President. He thought the President should know about this woman that's channeling. And she was able to answer questions about, you know, what's the distance between here and Jupiter. And she had like a third grade education or something. Was this before he got the memo and the briefing from uh, the guys in the States? No, the briefing was in November of, uh, September of 1950. This is now 1953, when the, when the sort of the channeling stuff starts, where, where Francis Swan, and Francis Swan was the big one. And the Canadians were never referred to her, like the metallurgist or uh, uh, Wilbur Smith's son, they'd always refer to her as the psychic. They never use her name or whatever. They're trying to protect her or whatever. But her name was Frances Swan. So she was getting this stuff. So then Wilbur would go to her and he would actually travel down there. In fact, Betty Hill was doing the same thing. Betty Hill was traveling that same route when she got abducted. She was coming from Canada when she got abducted. That's right. That's right. And so Wilbur would make that route down to Elliott, Maine, to where Betty Hill was living. And he would talk to her. And there's actually a document we have in the book. And, and I'm not sure whether it's the, it's the FBI document we have. And it's all blacked out. But when you know the story well enough, you know what's underneath the lines. And so Wilbur goes down there, and he has, as I said, they had this, this, um, this uh, little building where he had these five different things, and they were trying to detect flying saucers coming over. And he's going down to Francis Swan, and she's talking to Alpha and getting these messages, and, Alpha's, and he's asking questions of Alpha and stuff like that. 
And then in this FBI document, it basically says that he and his wife were there and that he had asked APA to fly over the observatory. Can you, can you get APA to fly over the observatory so we can pick him up? And so it's supposed to happen August the 1st, 1954. In the FBI document, it shows this. August 1954. What was the observatory? It was, a, it was built on this Shirley's Bay, this defense property. Where the UFOs and, were supposed to land. Well, no, where they, where? No, where they, had, where they, had, the, they had a building that had five different things. So change oh. in gravity, change in noise, oh, right, right. all these different things. And they, were, oh. they would be able to detect if something flew over. So they could tell when a plane This was over. the government thing that they built to Smith detect. Built it. And he yeah. was given this by the Defense Department. He given him this land to put it on. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little tiny building with all these, these machines with paper. And they had to change the paper and these little, these little things going on the paper. And, and so uh, Francis Swan, so I interrupted you, asked yeah. AFA to, to fly by. That was the idea. That was supposed to happen August the 1st. And then what you find out, when you look at and you put all the pieces together, it didn't happen August 1st, it happened August the 8th. It happened a week later. So we don't know what happened in between, but it had to be the same event. So this radar tech guy says, I was there when it happened. So they were around this, this thing, and all of a sudden the, they got bells. And ding, ding, the bells are going off, and, and something's flying over. And they, they went running outside, and they looked, and it was all overcast. They couldn't see anything. And he said the thing went right off the chart. <laughs> right off. Huge the, magnetic anomaly. Something went, went, went over, and they said it wasn't a plane, it wasn't anything. And Wilbur was pretty famous. Like, every time he would say something, it would be all, all over the newspapers in Canada. And he was actually, like, the big guy because the Americans weren't talking. So even in the United States, Wilbur Smith was famous. He was this famous guy. He was on the nightcap board. He was, uh, you know, everybody knew he, Fate Magazine was writing him up and stuff like that. So um, he actually went public and he said, oh, if, if there's nothing wrong with the equipment, we just detected the first flying saucer over Ottawa. Well, that was it. Game over. Shut the program down. They pulled the plug. They pulled the plug. And eight, <laughs> two days later, they pulled the plug and then they said, Wilbur was just doing it part time. He didn't right, discover right. anything. And that's where the story comes from, that Wilbur's doing it part-time, and that nothing ever happened, and all this kind of stuff. But it happened August the 8th, and the FBI document clearly shows that that's what they were trying to do. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to land him at Suffield, Alberta. He was trying to get him to fly over and stuff like that. And so AFA became this sort of very sort of famous person. And in 54, there was even, we, we have in the book the whole story of the 54 satellites, which most people don't know because it just faded off the radar. In 54, there was these two objects that were detected. So what was happening was, because they, had, they were looking at rockets, they had built long-range radar. So the U.S. Air Force had built this long-range radar to see if there was a Russian missile. They could pick up a Russian missile as it was coming. So they built this long-range radar, and suddenly, boom, they got these two big things on the radar. And, and it sort of it, it gets going. Aviation Week and Space Technology covered it. New York Times covered it. All sorts of people were covering this thing, that they had discovered these two satellites, these two objects rotating around the Earth. Well, Francis Swan was talking about these two giant crafts. One was flown by Alpha, one was Ponar. At the <laughs> same time, she's talking about this, and they're tracking this stuff. And it's in the FBI document that she's talking about these, wow. these L11. And this L11. is in the book? It's in the book. In the book. And, and they're talking about this stuff. And, um, and even Kehoe, we have a, I put out an a, um, audio on my podcast where Kehoe talks about it. Ke Major Admiral Kehoe ran Nightcap. He's talking about these satellites. And Wilbur had actually said... To people, it, we know where it's, we know where it is. If you see it in the sky, let us know. They're trying to track this thing, and so he was getting this from Francis Swan, and then the the government, whoever came up with the story, they said, "Oh, it's just natural satellites," and then it just died. The story died. The thing is, if it's natural satellites, but did they correlate where they were in the sky? No, they, this is just a, 
No, well, no, they, the, the government just put out the story that, no, no, this, this isn't uh, satellites. These, these aren't alien spacecrafts or whatever. They're just satellites. But the thing is, if they're satellites, they'll still be there. They're not there. Right, right, right. I mean, they, once they get in orbit, they're going to stay in orbit. They're not going to just suddenly fly off again. <laughs> and so that was a big story in 54. And, it, and once they put this story out there, it's not just satellites. The story sort of died, and most people in the UFO community don't know that there was this major story in 1954. Yeah, not too many people in the UFO community talk about Wil Wilbur Smith or Project Medicare. Well, I guess that's part of our problem in Canada, because Canadians never really detail it. There's even other stuff. We have, we have a, a Destiny I may do a part two of the book. There's all sorts of writings. Wilbur Smith wrote all sorts of articles and all this kind of stuff. It's the copyright issue of, of who controls. He wrote the book. It was called... Um, um, uh, what was the book called? New Science. It's called New Science. I've actually got two copies. I could probably sell them for a thousand dollars a copy. There's only wow. there's only maybe uh, two hundred copies printed. Wilbur's uh, wife put it out in 1964, so he died in 62, and he's writing on his manuscript. And in the beginning of the manuscript, it says, "Given to me by beings more advanced than than we are." I'll buy one thousand bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so so he, his wife put this thing out, and the last chapter is sort of missing because he died before he finished the last chapter. But it talks about how the universe is created and how the spin, everything has got to do a spin and all this kind of stuff. And there was actually a group that I heard about in Ohio that was actually researching this book. They had a study group, and they were researching the book, trying to figure out what it meant and stuff like that. And they put it out, and his son said that almost no copies were sold in America. He actually gave it a list. We've got the list of all the people in America bought it. Most of them were in the Soviet Union and the Scandinavian countries that bought the mm -hmm. book. And so there was only a couple of these, these books put out. So we've got that book. We've got all Smith's writings. None of that stuff we've, is in this book. We, we're just talking about these, these background stories. But Smith produced a, a bunch of material. And, and his stuff is actually at the University of Ottawa in, in Ottawa. And I remember going there, and I was looking at this stuff, and I didn't know how much stuff there was. And there's a funny story because we, we, we were, I was getting stuff, and the woman says, Oh, you can't, you got that file, you can't photograph, photocopy everything in the file. I said, wow. And she says, well, you just can't. That's the rule. You can't photograph everything. Hmm. And I said, well, where's the photocopy? She says, oh, it's down the hall. I go, okay. I go down the hall, open the thing, photocopy it all, <laughs> go back. <laughs> and I thought I had so all of it. So what files were these? You found, like, government all his files, files. All Department his... of Transportation files on Wilbur Smith? Oh, he had private, he had his own private files. He had, in fact, the top secret memo there's a there's a copy of the top secret memo without the top secret on it. He's got the draft copy in his oh, files. Wow. And what happened was when he was about to die, he said to his wife. His wife told me the story. His wife says, Wilbur said, because uh, he had cancer of the lower bowel and he was going to die. And he said, when I die, they're going to come get the files. You do not give them the files. I don't care what they say. You don't give them the files. And she said, as soon as he died, the Canadians showed up, the Americans showed up, and the Russians showed up. And they all said, we'd like to have his files for research purposes. And she said, no, I, I burned them. And then she'd given them to James, the oldest son. He was hiding the files at his place. And she said, then the break-in started at the house. Holy shit. And she said, you could tell. There was nothing taken. They were looking for the files. It's like the real-life Canadian X-Files. And so, they, so they, James had them. And then they handed them off to this Arthur Bray, this researcher in Ottawa. And he wrote a couple of books. And he had some of the stuff in, 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 in his books. Then he put them to the University of Ottawa. Then he gave them back to James, gave authorization for them to go to the University of Ottawa. And so when I went there and she just gave me this routine about you can't photocopy stuff, I thought I had, and I didn't realize, it was like 10,000 pages of material. It was like all sorts of stuff he had. And so then uh, there was another guy there who went there and he's scanning the stuff. And I said, well, they told me I couldn't uh, do it. He said, well, they're not giving me anything. They just say I'm not allowed to put it out. 
I said, okay. So he he sends me four discs. I can actually give you a disc. Do you know who discs. he was? What was he, what was he doing? He was a researcher. And he's not around anymore, but he, he just came on the, the line. And he went he scanned everything. All the photographs, everything, everything was in there. The whole thing he took, I don't know, a couple of months to do it. Where It was like 10,000 pages of material. It's four discs, four DVDs. He sent me of these DVDs. And they said, oh, they said you can't use it. I said, tell them I've got them. They want to stop me, sue me. <laughs> and I never heard anymore. I said, I got them now. I got all the files. And I just figured, like, hell. And I went to James. I said to James, I said, what's going on? They said, you know, I've got the files now. And I said, they say that you, you can't photocopy. He said, what the hell are they talking about? That's why I put them there for research purposes. Like, what are they talking about? And so I knew I had James back if, if it ever came down to it. And I just said, tell them I've got all the files. They can go to hell. They can sue me if they want to so I've got all. What the, were some of the files that uh, really impressed you? Some of the more interesting ones you can think of. Well, the the impressive thing was we there was the the, the top secret memo. We have the, the draft of the top secret memo. Then there was another top secret memo. The one that explains the bullet points of what, yeah. What the so there's the done. one that was that was and they they would say oh it didn't really mean anything it was he should like Slant we talked to Slant Slant says oh he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have made it classified anyway. He didn't have authorization. I'm going like, well, how do you classify a document? What do you send it in the mail to some guy and and, and get him to determine what classification yeah. is? No, you classify it. You have to classify it before you send the document. So he classified it, and they downgraded it to secret almost immediately. But it didn't get declassified until 1967. They declassified it down to confidential, and then Stanton Friedman was fighting with Arthur Bray in 1978 to get these documents out. They knew that the Smith files were there. And they forced the government to release them. That's when the top secret memo came out. And then it, the, one of the documents that came with that was this document we put in the book. Was this a document from the National Research Council in 1967? I think we call it the Wilson document. And in the document it says, uh, "Please attached is the, the Project Magnet report. Do not destroy any files until the subject is cooled off." This 1967 document. So you see this, that they really didn't check it when they were, they should never have released a top secret memo. They just figured there's nothing in this, declassify it, and it all came out. And then suddenly they got this top secret memo. And this other document talks about destroying the documents. And Wilbur Smith's, we have one we put in the book. There's a second top secret memo. So Smith is writing, he says, got the material from Robert Saubacher, uh, uh, University of Georgia, and um, we're lo I'm looking, he's asking the government for a security clearance to go into the United States to talk to the Americans. Then the other documents that we put in the book that came out of Wilbur Smith's files are the things from the Canadian Embassy. So what happens is that all the meetings are going through the Canadian Embassy. So this big research guy, mil uh, um, advisor, military advisor, Sarbacher, goes to the Canadian Embassy and they do this interview at the Canadian Embassy. So Wilbur's talking with the third ambassador, or the third secretary at the Canadian Embassy, and they're talking back and forth. And it actually, when you read the document, it actually looks at the Americans, they think the, um, there's a crash. The Americans are about to release the fact that they've got a craft, and they're going to release all this stuff. And they're saying, uh, the, the guy from the embassy said, the ambassador said, nobody outside of you and me are to discuss this, and it's all this confidential stuff, where they're waiting for the Americans to make a statement oh. in these documents. And so we got the, and Smith has these documents that is, rated secret, going back and forth between him and the Canadian Embassy. So there's documents like that we put in the book. Right. Do you think that's what Smith was talking about on his deathbed when he said, I don't want, don't give him the files? Yeah, well, he, what, he, what files he didn't trust like? the government at the end. He didn't, he did basically didn't trust the government. They tried to grab the, this uh, gravity control, and he's, he said he could never convince them of anything. 
He said, he said, if you think the government's going to disclose, he said, no minister will disclose something that he has no control over. It's not going to happen. So he's basically saying there's going to be no disclosure or whatever. And um, so when, when he died, he was, he, was, he was just telling his wife that they're going to try to cover this whole thing up. They're going to try to get his files. Oh, yeah, right. And that to save it. Because they would have them anyway. Well, they, they, were, they didn't have the stuff he had. He had all this stuff, but they wanted to sort of kill the story for, 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 for good. Get his material, and then his, his, nobody would ever know. Now we've got all the files. We've got these documents and stuff, and we can tell the backstory about what was going on. Because there was all sorts of stuff going on in the background that, that never uh, was sort of made public, that, that his wife told, and it's sort of backed up in the documents. And, uh, and then his writings were his, his writings... But again, it's it's a story that's uh, it's a Canadian story. And then once fifty four came, there was nothing. There was nothing happening in Canada. I think we put uh, did we put the Paul Eller story in the book about about the uh, the guy at Area fifty one? Because uh, after fifty four, nothing happened. So people would ask me, they say, well, what's the Canadian government doing now? I go, I don't got a clue. The mm -hmm. whole point is, if you want to cover it up, you do exactly what the Canadian government does. Is you just go like UFOs? How do you how do you spell that? Yeah, and, and then you, you after a while you give up. You don't know who to ask. Like who's going to have this? Who's got control? As the Americans are leaking these documents and there's yeah. counter agents coming out and stuff like that. So I really didn't know. But then what happened was, I remember we were in in Brampton, and there's there was Brampton or Toronto. But anyway, so we were there, and what they had done was the citizens' hearing thing. It was an imitation of citizens' hearing. Instead of senators and congress, ex senators and congressmen, they had reporters. So we were there, Dolan was there, I was there, I remember Friedman that, yeah. was there, and they were asking these questions. And I remember Paul Heller sitting right beside me. And then they went around and they said, uh, So, uh, Paul, uh, who, who's, who, who knows what's going on in Canada? And he's going, Well, maybe the head of the Privy Council, like the, the Prime Minister's office. And, he's, and I'm thinking, Oh, he's just guessing. It's, it's the old story. Like, nobody knows what's going on in Canada. It's like, they just re salute and, well, tell, and do whatever the Americans tell them. The Department to do. of Transport that did the um, the old what were they called uh, the, the UFO reports that would come in. Well, there was there was uh, the, the military UFO reports. What well, there was the, mil the military. There was different agencies. So RCMP was filing reports, military defense department and transport were filing reports, UFO reports. But they were all doing them separately. And then they all ended up at the National Research Council, and those were the ones that were being sent to Chris Rakowski. That people from mm. those agencies were putting these documents to Chris Rakowski, which we've got to get to the bottom of. But and didn't um, John Greenwald get a bunch of Canadian files? He too? was going after NORAD stuff. No, he he tried. Oh, it was a NORAD stuff. But, but the thing was, with, when Paul Hellier when it went around the first time, and he so you can hear he's guessing. I'm like, ah, it's the same old thing. Nobody knows what's going on here in Canada. And and I always said Paul Hellier didn't know what's going on. Like he, he got upset because when, when the, he gave that speech in 67, then when I put it on my website, I said, he, he said the story came from the, the guy who was a Royal Canadian Mounted Police guy who um, and was the, the, the expert in the Department of Defense. He'd come to the Department of Defense, he was the expert on UFOs, but Paul couldn't remember his name. And on my website, I went, yeah, come on, you can't remember his name. Like, come on. <laughs> and, and so then Paul came, and I met him at an X conference one time, and you, you ever met Paul? He's a big, tall guy. He's like six foot seven or whatever, six foot six. And he comes with these documents under his arm. And I still remember. My mm -hmm. father used to fly him around. My father didn't like him. But my father used to fly him because he, he was Minister of Transport as well. Mm -hmm. And he comes, he got these documents under his arm. He says, Mr. Gavard? Well, first he said, I'd like to have breakfast. He's like, oh, well, it's pretty cool. I'm gonna if ex-minister of defense, I'm going to have breakfast with him. He comes out with these documents. Mr. Cameron, this is how the meeting starts. Mr. Cameron, I made me many things, but one of them isn't a liar. 
I knew Jack was talking about you. <laughs> I could see him saying that too. So he puts the documents yeah. down. And he says, look, he says, I didn't know what was going on. He shows me his documents. I go, these are defense, you know, these are just sighting reports. This is nothing. I mean, this is not top secret, secret, whatever. These are just, I've seen these documents. They're nothing, you know, just, and, and then he says, I didn't know what was going on. He says, I was rebuilding the Canadian military. He was putting all of them together, the armed right, services right. were together. He said, that I was, there was maybe reports coming across, but I didn't have any interest in the subject or whatever. So people always did the thing with Paul Heller, and I said, he didn't know, he had no interest in it until he read Corso's book, Day After Roswell. And then the light came on, and suddenly he believed everything. He just he started running asking around. questions. And, the, and, 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 and so when, when this, we were at this panel, we're going around, and then it came to Paul Heller a second time. They're going to ask him another question. And then he goes, oh, I know somebody who would know. And then he blows this story. Like this, He says, I got a phone call one time from a guy in the Air Force. And he said, oh, there's this guy. He's the head of emergency management in Canada. And he's dying of Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou, uh, uh, um, what's it called? ALS. And he's, he's got something he wants to get off his chest. Hmm. And he's decided you're the guy he wants to talk to. He doesn't tell him what it was. And so Paul says, yeah, okay, you know, I'll, I'll phone the guy up or whatever. And he doesn't phone the guy. So the Air Force guy phones him back up. He says, hey, he's about to go off the cliff. You better phone him up. <laughs> so he phones up this guy and he says, oh, he says, I, I just I got something I got to unload here. He says, I just want to let you know. Beautiful thing, it's real. And he says, I had an emergency management. I was taken and I was briefed. I was taken to the CIA. I signed my life away, all this stuff. I signed all these documents. And it's for real. And I was taking oh, Eric Sissing Paul's book. I don't think, not that no. Paul ever talked talk, talk, It's in the, we've got the video of him talking about it. Oh, wow. And, and he says, he says, um, they, they, he went to Area 51. They took him to Area 51. He actually sat inside one of the crafts. And that, that makes sense. The head of emergency management wouldn't know what's going on. He would have a need to know because if there's a crash, and suddenly the stock market melts down, and you got to put money in the banks, and you would, they would have a contingency plan. For if UFOs exist, then what are we going to right, do? Right. And the head of emergency management would be the guy. Right. The same in the United States. There was a story that the that Mount Weather was where the UFO thing was being hosted. Mount Weather is is the bunker where they take the president and the vice president mm -hmm. if there's a nuclear attack. It's outside of Washington, and that's a FEMA facility. So FEMA is national emergency in the United States. Wow. So our guy would right, be. Right. So it, it made sense when Paul said that. I go, wow. the light came on. I was like, yeah, this guy would know. And, uh, but other than that, there's really been no, um, we don't know what it is. It's like, salute, just do what the Americans say. Because all you need, if you're going to keep something secret, is you need one guy in the Canadian Air Force, one guy in the Army, to know what's going on and feed the material up. Everybody else doesn't even know what's going on. And so, uh, that's always been the problem with the Canadians, is there's been no interest. And that's what happened with the Smith story, is it fell between the cracks because there was really nobody here that was promoting it. I knew it and I would, you know, tell stories and stuff. But I had to, and I had the documents. But it wasn't until we were doing the books I said, we need to get this out. We need to put the books out. So the first book that we've done, the Canadian government story, is to talk the Wilbur Smith story and what was going on in the background and all these bizarre stories of, of what was going on with the uh, Ottawa Flying Saucer Club and the metal that they recovered and, and what he thought of metal because all the material was coming from the United States and this is pretty public. That, that um, Wilbur's asked just before he died, you'll see in the book, I think we have, it's a handwritten uh, letter, um, um, note from Wilbur Smith back to a guy in Ohio. Like the Ohio were big on the, the Ottawa group. They were, would exchange and they'd go back and forth, whatever. And they were running this study group on the, on the book, trying to figure out what the book meant. And one of the guys there, we actually have an audio tape 
which we will put up on the podcast, where one of the guys comes just before Wilbur dies. He's up there about six months before, and of course Wilbur now is unloading. And he says, Wilbur told him that there was people coming with metal all the time, and there would be guys coming to his, to his house with suitcases chained to their wrist. And Wilbur Smith's son talks about this, and I've actually got his son on tape. I phoned him up and asked him this thing. I said, there's a story told by, they had what was called the Inner Circle Group. So there was Wilbur Smith, and then there was these inner circles. He had one guy from the Air Force, one guy from the Navy. He had this metallurgist guy that lived in Morden. He had these, these guys, and they all were this secret group, and they didn't talk uh, what they were doing and this sort of stuff. And um, so I've lost my train of thought here. Um, Talking about the government guys who would come to visit. Yeah, so he's 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 got the the um, the metal metal material, and they they had a piece that they got off the the um, out of the St. Lawrence, and the guy from Ohio came up and he said that Wilbur told him that yeah he was getting all this this metal these guys were coming to see him, and his son when I interviewed his son his son I asked said Buchanan who was one of these inner circle guys who basically when I contacted him he said look. This is an old story. You're beating a dead horse. Leave it alone. It's not going anywhere. He he was dying of cancer. He was just really upset about this whole thing. So he said, "Forget it. I don't want to talk to you." And you're just pushing the issue. It's not going anywhere. And he had told the story that Wilbur had seen a craft and bodies. Hmm. And then I'm I'm not sure if we got into the book, but there's a story that was told. Sherman that we went to see some files in in um, Arkansas, and the guy that had those files. There was a, a one of the files in there that talked about a guy in the United States who said that the guy from the um, the Aztec story. Um, they said these two guys hoaxed the thing, and the one guy, the one guy had made this statement that Wilbur had shown, given him access to the bodies, and this this key because I mean why would a Canadian have access to the bodies? And then I hear the story that that James Smith had said, yeah, his father had seen the bodies. So I said to James, the phone him, I said. So Buchanan in Edmonton is telling the story that Wilbur uh, was showing a craft outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's true. He hmm. said, it's true? He said, yeah, my dad told me about that before he died. He said, when, when my dad was dying and he knew there wasn't anything more, he confirmed to me. I asked him, he said, yeah. I saw. Wow. The, I was taken and shown the craft and I saw the bodies. And of course, what's the first question you ask about the bodies? Were they grace? He said, no, they weren't grace. He said, they looked just like us, but they were smaller people. That's what I recall. He said, I'm not... I don't, not hmm. quote me on that, but he said that's basically what it was. That he was taken to a craft outside of Washington, he was shown the shown the the craft and the body. So it might have been Andrews Air Force Base. We don't really we know because there's never been any other reports outside of Washington. And um, so Wilbur had this very high level thing, and he had the metal. So in uh, so you said that he did something in the St. Lawrence, and he was getting metal. Yeah, he, they, were, they, they had they had a bunch of stuff. His son said that that also there was blue military cars coming to the house all the time from the United States. And they would send metal fragments from the United States to Wilbur, to this metallurgist guy that I talked to, and he was doing the analysis. So I asked the metallurgist guy, I said, so how much metal did you, uh, do you actually analyze? He said, tons of it. Wow. And at one point he said, the Roswell thing? I think we analyzed that thing. He was talking about the metal, the memory metal hmm. stuff. He said, I think we analyzed that stuff. And so they had this thing where there was a giant explosion over the St. Lawrence, and they found these three huge pieces of metal on the side of the St. Lawrence River. And one was like 3,000 pounds or something, one was 2,000 pounds or whatever. And of course they said, well, it was this foundry down the thing and it was this slag or whatever. But it just suddenly appeared there. 
And this is this whole idea behind UFO crashes. Are UFO crashes being shot down? Are they riding into lightning? Or are, as Tyler D says, are they being gifted? Because mm -hmm. that's what I said to Jacques Vallée. If you saw my Jacques Vallée interview, I said, doesn't make any sense, Jacques. They come across the galaxy, they fly all the way here, and then they, they start crashing, mm -hmm. and, and little pieces are falling off these flying saucers, and it doesn't make any sense. It looks like they're dropping the stuff. And then Jacques says, well, the gifting idea, I, I think I came up with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so this is the idea that they, they may have dropped these pieces. So Wilbur talks about this. He talks about the metallurgist guy. There. He had this, this diamond two, two saw or something, and they're trying to cut it, and sparks are flying and, and stuff like this. They, they, so we put a little bit of that in the book about, the, about this metal material. Wilbur handled a lot of metal. He was a pretty famous guy. That's what people don't realize, that he was, he was a main guy in the United States and Canada, and he just was, was very open about what was going on. He, was, he would talk about confidentiality. And the one guy asked him, because the one piece he got was the, the, and we talk about it in the book, we have a chapter in the book called the 52 piece. So the 52 piece is the story about, um, they, they claim they shot a piece, and there's an orb flying over Washington, D.C., and they scramble these jets and they shoot at it and they knock a piece off this craft. And, and that's how Wilbur describes that, or everybody describes it, but that's how you describe it in the 1950s. We were told they shot it off. And it falls into the, the, the property of some CIA guy. Hmm. And this CIA guy actually writes a book about this. And they send the material, to this piece, to Canada. And in the book, we actually have a drawing. Uh, uh, Admiral Knowles, who would live next to Francis Swan, actually drew this thing. He saw the piece and he draws what this piece looked like. And they all believed it came off a two-foot orb piece. Hmm. And that Wilbur handled this thing. And then he sent it back. So at the very end of his life, there's a handwritten... Um, document we put in there where Wilbur is answering some guy from Ohio and the guy is saying, what about this piece? You said you sent it back. Who did you send it back to? Did you send it back to the CIA? And Wilbur is answering. He said, I, he said no, I, I sent it back. No, it went higher than the CIA. That identity of that group, you'll have to figure out for yourself. <laughs> and he handwrites it because he can no longer type. He's, he's dying. He's, 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 oh, he's very disabled at that time. He writes it in a handwritten thing. So there's all this stuff about the metal. And Wilbur was, was very involved oh, I in didn't know that. all That's this really metal stuff that was coming from the United States that were shared. And the other thing he told, we, uh, we, I'm pretty sure we mentioned the book, there was a woman that was, that was the, um, see there was a small group, and we were trying to talk to all the people that were still alive in this group that were around Wilbur Smith. And one was Helford Watkins. Her husband was the Air Force guy in this, what you call the inner circle. And she was the wife, but she was the, the editor of the, the Ottawa Flying Saucer Club newsletter, which we've got, I've got all the copies of the newsletter from all the, the ones they put out. And she said Wilbur had told her that there was a room inside the Pentagon that had hardware, that had like a museum of UFO hardware. So you see it moves from the Pentagon, where it's just got a little bit in the early 1950s, they've got pieces and stuff like that, and then it moves to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, then it moves to Area 51, and then when Area 51 gets exposed, then the supposed story, Stephen Greer says they moved it to Ohio where the, where the Mormons can keep their mouth shut and they're, <laughs> they're running it out of, out of Utah. Or the other one is it's in the South Pacific on an island now that they moved all the material. So they got this UFO material that they, they that's <laughs> made the ship, but it started according to Helford Watkins. And this is a letter from the 1970s where she said, Wilbur told her that they had a, a museum of UFO hardware, a room inside the Pentagon, where people go, well, look at this stuff. Hmm. It's a wild story, eh? It is a wild story. To think that happened in Canada. Details. Yeah, and the Wilbur Smith connection is amazing. Right on, Grant. This has been a great chat.
Is there anything else you want to add? Maybe uh, Project Magnet? Do we talk about that? Yeah, well, there's, there's that's the thing. There's two different projects. One was Project Magnet, which was the, the, the Wilbur Smith project. And what and was and Project Second Story was the other one, which was the defense one. Mm -hmm. But the second one, the defense one, only had about seven meetings, I think. And if you read the notes of the meeting, it was basically Wilbur Smith was talking and all the other guys were just sitting there. And he had, But he was powerful enough he could drag all these high-level military people in and guys from the... Uh, you know, the generals and stuff like that and, and get these guys involved. But in the end, he basically said that they, they weren't buying his goods. They just, uh, they wrote him off as a crazy guy. And, and Do you know why they called it Project Magnet and what else was going on well, he, in that he, project? His idea, he was working on gravitational stuff, so he believed the, the, the proposal to the tra Department of Transport was uh, the Earth is like a magnetic, is a giant magnet. It's like, and they're using the magnetic fields of the Earth for propulsion. And if we can figure this out, it's the old propulsion thing. Right, if we right, figure right, this out, we can we can get free energy here, and that's what he believes. So that's why he called it Project Magnet, and that was the proposal to get money to do this research. He believed there was a magnetic sink. They were creating this magnetic Didn't sink. Did he do some uh, magnetic anomaly studies on Lake Ontario? Well, he was doing he was doing a lot of stuff. There was there was actually a Project Magnet in the United States. They were flying around these planes in the United States, measuring the magnetic fields of the United, all, all around the United States. So there was all these links, but it was how much material we could get. He he was in charge of ionospheric stuff, so he was oh, wow. in charge of um, mm -hmm. where they were bouncing radio signals off mm -hmm. the ionosphere, and he was running all the different ionospheric stations. So he had, and he was involved in the, um, 1957 was the year of the, um, it was a major year where they had all these scientific exploration from all around the world and stuff like that. He was involved in a lot of, a lot of stuff. And yet his files, I haven't even read through his files. I've got his files, but it's like my Staten Friedman files. i got 6,000 pages of Staten Friedman files. And, and they're very hard to read through because then nothing's in order. And I would say to people, they'd say, oh, what about in the Friedman is? You want to see the Friedman files? I can just one click of a mouse, it's on my OneDrive. Hmm. And then I would say to people, if you see anything interesting, tell me. Nobody's ever written me back about, oh, I saw this document, because I'd say, you help me read the documents, because 6,000 pages, so many I've only read maybe 10% of the Staten Friedman stuff. And the Wilbur Smith is the same thing. I've only read maybe not even ten percent of the files. Wow, I've really? got four discs of these files of all these. Like we got some work to do. This. <laughs> and that's the thing is you can put this kind of stuff out where you put it on the record. So instead of me having this stuff on my computer and Desta's got it, I mean put it out so that maybe someone can read it. Most people won't read it, but at least it's there for everybody to to look at. So that's why I said like you have all these writings. Wilbur Smith wrote all sorts of yeah. articles. He wrote a book. Uh, and stuff like that, which there's only 200 copies, and, and people have heard about it and stuff like that. And to get somebody who may look at it, I know that, that that's why NIDS, these people at NIDS were contacting me, because they were into everything NIDS, and they were contacting me because they wanted to know about Wilbur Smith and the propulsion thing. They wanted to know what, what had I got, and then I got a request through a second party. Uh, Jacques Vallée wanted the medals, because Jacques Vallée's in the medal. Can, can I see the metal stuff? And then so I said, all the metal files from the Smith files over, and then I just got this second-hand thing. Jacques says, th thank you. And so the, the, at least somebody's reading it. <laughs> well, that's good, that's good. I mean, man, not many people, you know, I think it's really important you did this, you know? It's a big part of Canadian history. Yeah. UFO but I'm history. sort of a collector. I used to collect matchbook covers. I've still got my collection of 17,000 matchbook covers. Some of them are almost 100 years old. And wow. so to me, it's like a, so to me, it's always like a game. It's like, you know, Just when you do matchbook covers, it's like you want to get all the Holiday Inns. I've got 3,000 <laughs> Holiday Inns of all the different Holiday Inns matchbook covers. And it's like a game. So it's right, like, right. to me, it's like you're playing a chess game, 
And so you're just watching the board, and it's like, why did they move that piece? You know, like mm -hmm. if the guy knows what he's doing, he's doing it for a reason. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it, yeah. to me, it's, it's a game. It's like trying to figure it out, and you're trying to get all the material. So if you hear the the, the Stanton Freeman files, you know, it costs some money. I go, yeah, I'm going to go check this out. I want to go see. And the first thing I do when I go to the Freeman files is I knew about the Cuban case. So I go, you know, I file and, and get the thing, and they've got the Cuban the Cuban file. First thing I go in there, I say, what box do you have first? The one with the Cuban in it. And I go, and look, and this is the story about the Cubans scramble these jets. And they, oh, they, yeah, they right go right. after the UFO, and then they get the, the wingman says, he's gone, he's gone, he's, the plane's gone. The plane just vaporizes. <laughs> As gone. they lock on to, to take it down and stuff. And that interests me when you're in an archives. Even Dest has been, we've gone a couple. In fact, Dest made a big discovery at, at, at we were in Tucson. We were looking at the files, and, and they have all these rules. You know, you, when you're in an archives, you can't, you know, they don't want you pulling more than one file at a time because you're going to get it all mixed. And don't take the stuff out of the file. So we've got, Dest has got everything spread all out there. And, and she had found, we were talking about metals, about these, these metals that get dropped. So what Desta found was a metal, uh, uh, it looks like a spike. I don't know if you've ever seen the photograph. Desta yeah, I know the one. Yeah. With, with the bubbles on the top. Yeah. And it's got the copper core on the inside. And this is from 1939. The guy's a farmer and he sees this thing coming out of the sky like a meteorite coming down. It goes, bang, to the, wow. digs into the, into the, into the, the, the garden. That was before satellites. 1939, right? yeah. yeah. That's, that's and, pretty crazy. And he waits for the thing and it's always, the metal is always hot. So he waits and he gets a, a knife and he pulls this thing out. And then he sends it to his daughter. His, his daughter sees it and she's in Tucson. And then NASA has a, a lab there because it's 1967. They're putting the man on the moon or whatever. So she's got this weird looking thing, spike that came out of the sky. And she takes it there and it's in this file. And Desta finds it in the file because she's working on some files and we're working on it. You're trying to get it through as many files. And it becomes like a, like a, like a search. You know, you're trying to, or we were in, um, we were in Arkansas. Maybe we were in Arkansas, and I'm sitting there, and you find these discoveries. Like I don't know if you follow. Uh, I got involved because of Edgar Casey. So Edgar Casey's this, the the American big prophet, right, right. the sleeping prophet. And so we're sitting there, and we're looking at this. And this guy that we we're I can't remember the guy's name. But we were researching. Sherman. Sherman. Yeah, he's he's he has this research. He's a guy writing. Harold. Harold Sherman. He doesn't believe in reincarnation, but he's 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 interacting with with uh, um, Casey. Casey. And here's actual letters with Casey's signature on it. I'm going, holy shit. Wow. I'm, I was ready to go to the archives. Said, You're going to lock this thing up, man. Where did you, you find those? Where, where was it was that? in an archives. So when you go to these archives, that's it's like a gold rush. So yeah. I went to see like the archives of the guy who wrote the, the, the Scully, uh, Frank Scully, who wrote the Aztec book, the whole cry, the first crash saucer book. It's at University of Wyoming. So I'd always go to the United, I'd go to the West Coast, and you'd be going right through Laramie, Wyoming. I'd go, hey, let's go look at the Sherman files. And you go through and you look at this stuff, and you're the first guy to touch those documents since the guy touched them. Wow. And the, the guy's dead, and these archivists, they don't really stick this stuff in. And you're looking for the gold mine, you're going like, you know, maybe he wrote to somebody, and there was one we actually had in there um, in, the, um, um, in the Scully file to show you how this works. So we're in the Scully files, and the same guy who discovered Dr. Airwalker was this um, um, Bill Steinman out of California. So, uh, Scully lived in Los Angeles. He dies, and then sure, uh, um, uh, my friend goes to his wife and says, "Oh, can I see his files? Can I go through his files?" And she said, "I'm sending him to the University of Wyoming, where he went to school, and you've got 24 hours." And he, so he goes through this and he finds this letter from 1952, a handwritten letter 
from a woman out of New York to Frank Scully and said, oh, I like your book here, and I just got to tell you this story. She says, and the, and the story, if you know the story of the live alien, she says, oh, we were, um, we were traveling on the west through Nevada, and we had a flat tire or something, and we were there, and this very young, nice guy from, I think she said the FBI, I can't remember if it's in the, the letter, from the FBI came along, and he was very helpful, he wore a suit, and he helped us get our car going and stuff like that. And then he got involved with, with the daughter. He, he, was, he took a shine to my daughter. And he told his daughter that he had worked, and they had a live alien in New Mexico, and that the alien couldn't talk. And that they had put a, a thing in the alien's uh, throat to help the alien talk. Well, that story comes up. In the alien thing, and I'm so I'm going like this is the same. And it's like a handwritten letter from 1952, and then you're going, wow. they may have actually had an alien. They couldn't talk, and they put a voice thing inside the the, the throat. And so it's those kind of things you're looking for when you see when you know Stanton, like Stanton's got there was 15 pallets of documents, and then when I heard 15 pallets of documents, documents, yeah, there's shit. like a million. This whole basement, this garage, and everything was wow. stacked high to the ceiling of documents. It was full. And, and so you look at it, and then when they told me when I was leaving, they said, oh, um, they were showing me the, the palette of the documents. And every videotape he'd done, like, uh, like tapes from um, 1970 interviews on these big, big uh, tapes, you know, and stuff like that. And then she said, oh, and we got a lot of audio tapes. He taped all his phone calls. He went, he what? Hey, what? He taped all his phone calls. Wow. <laughs> so then I went back. I was going to go there a couple months ago, and I said, because they have an audio person who does all the videos and all the audios. And I said, have they, have they got those audios done yet? <laughs> and so she's have to talk. There's to someone that manages all the files there? Yeah, and oh. these archivists, because they're handling the files. Because Stanton, they didn't really want the Stanton files there. Because they, they, it was like, he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's an American. So why would uh, Fredericton pay all this money to, right, to right. file his files? But he was so famous in Fredericton. That they they, they they talk the archives, which isn't into UFOs. It's not into anybody's files. It's got land title stuff and deaths, births, all this kind of stuff. And suddenly they got this collection. It's got four people, and they figure it's like four years, four full-time people working on this thing, filing these files, wow. and one page at a time. Because Stan didn't have any file file drawers. Everything was she she went in like she said stuff was stuck to the ceiling. All these. Papers, you know, stacked in the ceiling. She said, Stan, Stan, why didn't you file this stuff? And she, he said, I have a secretary. No, I have a secretary. <laughs> and so they had to go through this stuff one page at a time. And when I was there, she was sort of, she was getting me to help her, you know, what to do. And, and she said, I got all these stuff, like all these notes, like I do, the same thing. You got these little notes, a piece of paper, or whatever. And she's got all these notes. What should I do with them? I said, well, don't throw them out. Just stick them in a box. And so she has this box with all just these pieces of paper with somebody's phone number on it or something like that. I said, you never know where, where it'll come down. And, and they were sitting there. They didn't even know who people were. I said, okay, so you got to have Phil Class. you got to have a file for Phil Class. <laughs> well, we know him already. We know him. Yeah. We know him and stuff. <laughs> and so they're trying to figure out, because they don't know UFOs. They don't know researchers. They don't, they don't know anything. And I said, MJ-12. you got to get all the MJ-12. And then I heard the other thing that I heard when I left. They said, oh, we got his computer. And his computer crashed just before he died. And, and we got a guy that's going to pull the files off the computer. So when I went, it's going to go last time, I said, hey, you got a computer. You got the files yet? Because that'll help with all the TTSA stuff. You may have yeah, a Elizondo yeah. correspondence email. Who knows what's on the <laughs> And that's all going to be sort of sorted. You can actually just grab it off the... I got to talk to Stan a few years ago, maybe a year before he passed, and I asked him yeah. about TTSA. And 
pretty interesting conversation. Yeah, so he would have some stuff on there. And that's the thing, nobody's seen it. So the first, I'm going to be the first one there, unless somebody else beats me there. And that, so that's the game is to me. It's like, oh my God, I wonder what's going to be going to fight, you know. Like, I'm going to have some big thing. And then you put it out and everybody goes, yeah, well, everything, I don't even care. That's awesome. Grant, it's amazing that you do this hard work, man. You dedicate so much time and energy. I have to no it. life. <laughs> yeah. I'm envious. Hopefully someday when I have more time, I'm going to get around to do it. Thanks, Grant. Okay, really appreciate thanks. it. Cheers. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.